What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, trick or treat. Well, we got a treat. Impeach. Yep, that's what's going on. Welcome. <laughs> Amazing. The House of Representatives just voted 232 to 196 to begin an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump in a relatively public way using a new set of rules, which is actually more favorable to Trump than the House rules that were voted on and used against Bill Clinton or against Richard Nixon. And the Republicans are all sitting around going, oh, the process is so unfair. The process is more fair to them now than the process was against Clinton or the process was against Nixon. So let's just set that aside. But there's a much larger issue here. When the House of Representatives voted to launch an impeachment investigation into Richard Nixon, now this was before they even had the tapes. When they voted to launch that inquiry, the vote was 410 yes, 4 no. And those four who voted no were all Republicans. So Nixon had four Republicans. And this is just to open the inquiry, right? This wasn't to impeach. In fact, they, they never got to a vote to impeach because Nixon resigned before they could. But just to open the inquiry, 410 to 4. And today we had two Democrats who defected from the Democratic Party, Jeff Andrew and Colin Peterson. And they're both Democrats who are in districts where Trump overwhelmingly won. And they're, so they're you know, kind of dancing as fast as they can. And I get that. You know, and I'm not going to criticize them for that. You know, they were not decisive votes. But what's the difference between the Nixon vote and this vote today? Why is it that in 1974, Republicans were willing to say, you know, it looks like the president actually committed a crime here. We need to check this out, which is all the inquiry is, right? We need to investigate this. All but four Republicans said, yeah, that's a reasonable thing. It does look like the president committed a crime. Well, here we've got a president who has admitted he committed a crime, who has published the crime, or one piece of it, in progress. And yet no Republicans defected. No Republicans said, well, yeah, it looks like the president committed a crime. Maybe we should check it out. None of them. 
The only one who voted along with the Democrats was Justin Amash, who has left the Republican Party. He's an independent from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Was a Republican. He came out after he read the Mueller report. He's probably the only Republican who actually read the Mueller report. He's, he read that and he said, you know, there's 10 different instances of obstruction of justice in here. Not to mention all the attempts by the Trump campaign to collude with Russians. They were just incompetent, apparently. So what's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is that two years after the Nixon impeachment inquiry, the United States Supreme Court, and this is why I wrote this book about the history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Two years after the Nixon inquiry, the United States Supreme Court ruled that it was perfectly legal for billionaires to own individual politicians. And then two years after that, the first, that 76 decision was the Buckley decision. The two years later, the first national bank decision. Two years after that, the Supreme Court ruled that, oh, and by the way, we're going to extend that logic to corporations. They can own politicians too. That was in 76 and 78. And this is, I mean, just incredible. In fact, when the Judiciary Committee, which was half Republicans, half Democrats, back in the Nixon era in 74, voted to subpoena the tapes, Nixon's tapes, which would be similar to the Judiciary Committee today, voting to subpoena, for example, the transcripts of Nixon's conversation with Erdogan that caused him to stab the Kurds in the back, and I sure hope they go there. That vote was 33 to 3. Only three Republicans supported Nixon in 74. I guarantee you, if that vote was held the Judiciary Committee today, every single Republican would vote no. Because Trump has delivered for the billionaires. They don't care that he's a bloated orange mobster, that he's you know, all about trying to make more money for himself, that he's, all that stuff is irrelevant, that he's a racist, that he's a misogynist, that he's a hustler. And I don't just mean racist as in, you know, like notices racial differences, which I think is a fairly universal experience. I'm talking racist in, you know, this guy uses race for political purposes in a way that is harmful to people. When you look at it, I mean, how could Republicans justify this? They can justify it because there's money for it. Politico is reporting that Donald Trump is raising millions of dollars for individual Republican senators. Individual Republican senators. Now, keep in mind, the trial will be in the Senate. The Republican senators are essentially jurors in this. And there are three senators in particular. Trump has, has sent out a fundraiser raising money for Colorado's Cory Gardner, Republican from Colorado. He's up for re-election. Iowa's Joni Ernst, a Republican from Iowa. She's up for re-election. North Carolina's Tom Tillis, who has the good sense to spell his first name right, but other than that, Republican from North Carolina. And in his fundraising, in his fundraising request to his millions, you know, I got, you know, I get this email, right? Hey, Fred. The email said, if we don't post strong fundraising numbers, we won't be able to defend the president from this baseless impeachment hunt. And then it says, you know, help us help out Cory Gardner, Joni Ernst, and Tom Tillis. He's explicitly bribing the jurors. He is bribing the jurors. And Richard Painter, who was George W. Bush's ethics advisor, 
his White House ethics lawyer, Richard Painter calls this felony bribery. You know, when I was 17, there was this girl hanging around the student union at MSU. I was living out in East Lansing at the time, whose father was the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan and was in the middle of the process of prosecuting the mob, prosecuting a mob family. And what he was prosecuting them for was bribing a juror. This mobster had basically won a case in court, and it turned out that the reason he won was because he had bribed a juror, maybe more than one juror, I don't, I don't recall. And the mob had threatened him. So there was like police, there were police around the house all the time, police protection. And so this girl had to sneak out of the house to come over to the union building and hang out and play cards with us. Well, that girl was, is Louise, my wife. We started dating back then and you know, we've been married 48, 47 years now, next week. And I mean, that's what we used to do when people bribed jurors. Nixon wasn't raising money for Republicans. He couldn't do that. I mean, it was against the law back then. But the Supreme Court blew up these laws. And so now you've got a bunch of Republicans who are basically wholly owned by a group of billionaires and a bunch of large corporations, and they know these Republicans who voted today in the House of Representatives, not one of them broke. Why? It has nothing to do with the case before them. It has to do with the fact that the billionaires are getting what they want. They got a trillion and a half dollars last year. A trillion and a half dollars just poured down on them like rain. Billionaires today, this you know, is a big news story two weeks ago. Billionaires today are paying lower taxes, lower tax rates than working people. They're paying lower tax rates than working people in poverty. They're paying lower tax rates than people making $20,000 a year. Billionaires, which gives them enough money to buy the Republicans, which they've done. And that's what we're seeing here. What we're seeing is the consequence of money in politics. Donald Trump, a mobster, in New York, you know, dealing with mobbed up people as, as a real estate developer, dealing with the, with the uh, Russian and Ukrainian and other, you know, uh, former Soviet mobsters and oligarchs. A mobster then and a mobster now. I mean, this is just absolutely mind boggling. And check this out. I mean, this is from Politico. It's too much. Democrats shudder at Trump's money machine. Donald Trump and the Republican National Committee have raised more than $300 million this year for his reelection, more than any other sitting president in history. Trump has twice as much cash on hand, $158 million, as Barack Obama and the DNC had at this time in their successful reelection bid in 2012. The campaign spent $4.2 million over the last 90 days advertising on Facebook. And out of that, they got 313,000 new donors. They're investing in Facebook. They're making more money than it costs them. He's sitting on $300 million, $158 million on hand. And how much does the DNC have on hand right now? $8 million, $8.2 million. The money is pouring in. This is the one thing that really troubles and concerns me about the upcoming elections, both the primary and the general election.
is that the, the billionaires and the corporations have been unleashed. And, you know, they're coming for us. They're, they're taking down our democratic process. They have bought an entire political party. This is the Tom Hartman program. And then you look back at Ken Vogel's reporting in Politico about how, you know, Heritage and other right wing groups are funding to the tune of millions of dollars right wing talk show hosts. They're taking them too. So amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing stuff. I thought it was fascinating. Many of the calls to Congressman Pocan were about why can't Congress just put these people in jail when they ignore subpoenas? And this is something that, frankly, the Democrats need to be screaming about in the news media. And that is that if you want to put somebody in jail for ignoring a subpoena, you have to refer it to the Justice Department. And Bill Barr is running the Justice Department. William Sapphire used to call him cover-up General Barr. And that's exactly who he is and what he does. And, And it needs to be pointed out and said more often. Will in Woodstock, New York, listening to WIOF. Hey, Will, what's up? This person that uh, occupies uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Mm-hmm. What kind of father doesn't bring his 13-year-old son to a World Series game? Uh, that's just unbelievable to me. But anyway, contempt of Congress. There is a sergeant of arms in the chamber, right? That's correct. That is a law enforcement officer? Yes and no. It's, it's, it's technical. I mean, he's authorized to keep order in the Capitol building but he's not authorized to go across town or across the country and, you know, arrest somebody who's refusing to come in and testify. But if somebody's in the Capitol building and they start, you know, they pull out a gun or they start throwing things at legislators or they're very disruptive, he would be the guy to drag them out of the building. I mean, there's basically three ways that Congress can hold somebody in contempt. There's inherent contempt, which is what we were just talking about, where Congress basically acts as the jailer themselves. Then there's civil contempt. That's where you sue them and you say, we're going to fine you $50,000 a day every day you don't show up. Well, you can't do that until a court rules on it, which means that you have to go to a court. And the court says, okay, fine, we'll put you on the docket, but you know it could be six months or it could be a year. Eric Holder was sued for contempt of Congress because he refused to testify at one of, uh, one of the show trials. I think it had to do with Benghazi. And he refused to show up. And it took seven years for the court to adjudicate it. And then the third way you do it is you refer to the Justice Department. You ask for an arrest warrant that could be enforced by the FBI or some other police agency that the Justice Department has authority over. And that requires Attorney General Bill Barr to sign off on it. And he's not signing off on anything like that. So that's the problem. You know, until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. Louise convinced me there was one product worth sharing, and a year later, I have to say she was right. The key to losing weight is getting your appetite and those pesky food cravings under control, and then losing weight is easy. My producer, Sean, was so impressed with Louise's results that she's trying Riduzone 2. I mean, who doesn't want to lose a few pounds before the holidays? Sean says Riduzone is making it easier for her to stick to her weight loss plan. Just one capsule with breakfast and forget it. A second one at dinner for days when you need a little extra help. Sean says when you don't feel hungry, it's easier to make better choices. The only ingredient in Riduzone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant. And that appealed to both Louise and Sean. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Riduzone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. 
Go to RidUZone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. RidUZone.com. Promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. RidUZone.com. Tom Harbin here with you. By the way, while, you know, the bought-off Republicans in the House of Representatives were voting to defend a president who gives massive tax breaks to billionaires and to big corporations, what was the Senate up to? The Republicans in the Senate voted unanimously, unanimously, to do away with the law that says that health insurance companies may not discriminate against you if you have pre-existing conditions. I'm not making this up. It got no coverage at all, which to me is mind-boggling. The Republicans yesterday voted unanimously. Well, actually, there was one, one Republican who didn't vote with them. That was Susan Collins. She's starting to feel the heat. And, and, and frankly, the thing that has really cranked up the heat on Susan Collins is this one guy, this one guy who just met her in the airport. He was flying home to Maine from Washington, D.C. She was flying home to Maine from Washington, D.C. He saw her in the airport. He walks up to her. Now, keep in mind, Susan Collins has not done a town hall in 20 years. She has not interacted with her constituents in Maine in 20 years. So this guy walks up to her and asks her a question, and it's been a few weeks since I read the story. I don't recall the exact details of the question, but basically, you know, asks her a question about something that's going on, whether it, whether it was impeachment or health care. My apologies. I, I, you know, you can, you can Google it. But he asks her a question, and she gives him a, a gibberish answer. And, I mean, they're, they're like, you know, waiting in line to board the plane. And so he says, you know, well, you know, it, that's really not an answer. I mean, what about this? And she just gives him another gibberish answer. And then he says, okay, you know, cool. And she, or she says, you know, I've got to go take a phone call or whatever. And so then he's standing in line, and she's standing there with one of her aides. And she starts talking to her aide about how rude he was. How dare he approach me? essentially. So he goes back to Maine and he buys a full page ad in the Maine newspaper saying, Senator, I asked you this question. You refused to talk to your constituents in town halls. Would you please answer this question? And that becomes big news in Maine. And now he's published a second ad in the paper that has been signed on to by like 400 prominent Mainers who are saying, Senator Collins, please answer the damn question. So anyhow, she's feeling the heat, but all the other Republicans voted to go along with Trump's proposal to allow health insurance companies to sell policies that can discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, where the insurance company, you buy the insurance policy, you think, hey, I got a great insurance policy. It's only $200 a month. Amazing. And then you get cancer. And then the insurance company comes back and says, uh, hey, you just asked for $100,000 worth of chemotherapy. We just discovered that back when you were 19 years old, you smoked cigarettes for a year. That puts you at risk for cancer. You have a pre-existing condition. We're going to deny your payment. Sorry. Raise your money on GoFundMe.com. All right, put some tin cans in the, in the local 7-Elevens. This is what the Republican senators voted for yesterday. Again, because they're wholly owned. They're owned by the insurance industry. They don't give a rat's ass about what's best for America. They don't care about you. 
They don't care about their constituents. They just care about who's paying the bills because the Supreme Court in 76 and 78 legalized bribery. Lou in Torrington, Connecticut. Hey, Lou, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Maybe I'm not as informed as I should be, but if a president is impeached, should they be allowed to run for a second term? And if so, shouldn't we have an amendment to the Constitution uh, preventing that? There is no law that says that, to the best of my knowledge. And, you know, if somebody's been impeached or removed from office, they, uh, you know, generally speaking, the idea is that they can run for office later. I mean, you know, case in point, Roy Moore. Roy Moore got kicked off the Supreme Court down in Alabama, and then he ran again, right, for the same, same position. I'm not sure that he was impeached, but it might have been an impeachment. I'd have to go back and look. But there's nothing that specifically forbids it. I think that the founders figured that it would be so obvious to everybody that this person is like absolutely wrong for the country. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's such a bad president, he got impeached, that he would have no electoral success trying to make a comeback. Try telling that to Trump supporters. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like, you know, this, this absolute firewall of Fox News is pretty bizarre. Thanks a lot for the call, Luke. Good to talk to you. Beverly in McKinley, Illinois. Hey, Beverly, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? I wanted to pose, I don't know, the idea of moving this or stalling it to go later, the impeachment and the hearings. Everybody, news media talks about how fast it needs to be. Wouldn't it be better if the hearings in the House were held in January so that the public could watch them? They're all going to be tied up with Christmas and scheduling. Then it's forefront, all the issues on their mind when they're going to vote. And it would help the senators who don't have to go off the trail. And then if we could stall, all we need to eliminate is a month from February 3rd to March 3rd to get through all those primaries. We'll eliminate enough of the senators anyway where they won't have to worry about it. Just make it more on the front of people's minds and maybe bypass some of the minimums for when other Republicans can jump into the race. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't later be maybe more advantageous than earlier? I think so, Beverly. And I've said on this program a number of times that I think that, you know, people when back, this is back a month or two ago when people were saying, oh, it's going so slow and Nancy Pelosi isn't moving fast enough. And I was like, you know, if this thing is moving uh, slowly and it ends up being shifted into next early next year, you know, the closer you can get it to the election, the more damage it's going to do to Trump, in my opinion. Now, I may be wrong on that. The more it may activate his base, and particularly if, if he wins in the Senate, if he stays in office, you know, the more he'll claim vindication. But it has taken on a life of its own, Beverly. Right now, the impeachment inquiry, since Trump committed this bribery, and Democrats need to start calling it bribery and the solicitation of bribes or extortion. But bribery is the word that they should be using because that's the word in the impeachment clause in the Constitution. And that's exactly what Trump did, but he offered a thing of value. That's a bribe. So if they can successfully educate the American people about it, I, I think at a larger level, it almost doesn't matter when that happens. But I think that also, you know, the events have taken on their own life and it's not going to be something that can be stalled or stopped just for politics. We now have Donald Trump explicitly raising money to help with his impeachment efforts for Joni Ernst and for Tom Tillis. And there's one other Republican. Let me find the article here. 
and, uh, you know, basically just laying it out to the jurors, right? These are the jurors and Cory Gardner, Colorado's Cory Gardner. He is raising money for the jurors in his upcoming trial. Now, Richard Painter, who was George W. Bush, he's a lifelong Republican. He was George W. Bush's ethics chief. He was the head ethics lawyer in the White House during the Bush administration, has come out and said that this is criminal felony bribery, in his opinion. Now, I'm not so sure that Citizens United didn't make this legal, but it's the sort of thing that would have to be adjudicated, which is not going to happen before the 2020 election, in all probability. But right now, Trump is putting his thumb on the scale. He's, he's, he's corrupting the jury, the Republicans who are going to sit in judgment of him. And when the vote happened in the House of Representatives about whether or not there should be an inquiry into impeachment, keep in mind when this happened with Nixon, and Nixon was fabulously popular with the American public at the time in 1973, 74, Nixon won the 72 election. He was reelected. He won 49 states, as I recall, in his reelection effort. You know, the Republicans were solidly behind him. And yet only four Republicans voted not to investigate him, voted against the investigation. The investigation, the vote was 410 to four. This vote was 232 to 196. Not one single Republican broke ranks. Why? because they're all being bribed, because the Supreme Court legalized this in the mid-70s, which brought us the Reagan era, brought us neoliberalism, brought us the rise of the billionaire class, brought us all this income and wealth inequality in the United States, and basically ended, over the course of about 40 years, basically ended our democracy. Now the middle class doesn't get what they want, regardless of how they vote, which is the definition of democracy, when you do get what you want based on how you vote. Now it doesn't happen anymore. Why? Because of legalized bribery by the Supreme Court. And as noble an effort this may be, and as clear the crime of bribery that Trump committed may be, I'm really worried about this bribery thing. Bill in St. Helens, Oregon. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? All this whole thing about the quid pro quo, that's, that's icing on the cake. But we know Trump broke election law by soliciting political information from a foreign government, and we know he broke election law again by encouraging a foreign leader to break our election law. But right, and these are not small laws; the these are felonies. No, they keep on thinking like somehow if it's not a quid pro quo, none of this happened. Well, but it did. So to me, that's an aside. But he also, by the way, broke election law when he paid off Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. That is a felony as well. Yes. That's a, that's a felony for which Michael Cohen is sitting in prison right now. An individual one is still in the White House. But so I'm looking at Article One, Section Nine of the Constitution, the little last paragraph where it says, "Any person holding office of profit or trust under the United States, without the consent of Congress, will accept or any present or emollient." Emollient can quite simply be interpreted as compensation. Uh, Trump was soliciting a favor, so it wasn't even a matter of him accepting the help from the Ukraine. It was a matter of him actively soliciting something of, of value for That's the Ukraine. That's correct. So to me, he's, it's suborning he's perjury. a direct violation. Uh, bribery. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so to me, that's 
to me, you know, Section 9, Article 1, Section 9, it should be the go-to. That's like even above all the rest of this. He clearly and knowingly attempted to violate, attempted to violate the Constitution. He didn't get what he wanted, right. but he actively solicited it. It wasn't offered. He solicited it. So I don't know. We're not talking about that. Well, and he's been doing this with his Washington, D.C. hotel. He's been doing this with uh, Tunbury in Scotland, where he had ordered the military to, to, to put their people up in his hotel and, and spend millions and millions of dollars at the local airport that was going to be otherwise closed, which would have hurt the business to his hotel um, or to his golf resort. I mean, there's multiple instances of this guy just basically being a grifter. I mean, we, you know, this, is, this is the bottom line, Bill. We have a grifter in the White House. We have a guy, a con man in the White House. And I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Uh, well, I mean, you could add other things to that. But, you know, he's been a hustler his whole entire life. He's a hustler right now. I, increasingly, I think he's absolutely broke. I think that's why he's putting the, the D.C. hotel up for sale. It's not because of the emoluments clause. It's because he's running out of money. It's why he, he took the chance of trying to say, let's have the G7 at the Doral. Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Gold. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Bob, watching Free Speech TV in Westminster, Colorado. Hey, Bob, what's up? I feel, based on what I see on the vote, when it comes to the election and all the stuff going on, we're at DEFCON 4. Yeah. Yeah. We're really beyond that almost because... This is going to be the most vicious and most brutal and most vile election in, since 1900. I agree. And, oh, yeah, uh, well, and since I don't know what we're yeah. going to do. I hope there's enough people that wake up. I'm afraid they won't because of the stuff I hear and I see on the street. Uh, it, it just concerns me. And being a veteran, I'm so angry that they've been able to, to diss veterans. Because I was a, I was at the first Cav Division in '67 and '68, and we had 27 killed in my in my unit. Oh my, that's a tough. Anyway, one. I'll let you go. Okay. But anyway, thanks for your help. Your yeah, help. I, I share your concern, and this is you know where and why we just need to really, really get active about this. Bob, thank you for the call. Douglas in Seattle. Hey, Douglas, what's up? Quick comment. Article one, section three, Senate powers under the Constitution or it's called uh, impeachment. Right. And cases of impeachment shall not, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Oh, wow. Thank you for that, Douglas. I had completely mm -hmm. forgotten. You're absolutely right. So, so if Trump is impeached, he would be forbidden from holding high off, from running for president. Convicted. If he's convicted, not impeached. Right, right, if he's convicted. 
Yeah, if he's removed if he's from convicted, office. He's convicted. He's removed from office and he may never serve again. Yeah, the nightmare, the nightmare scenario here is Trump gets impeached in the House, which is a virtual certainty, I think, now. And that goes to the Senate for the trial. They hold a trial. And at the end of the trial, the Republicans are still, you know, there's still a firewall for him. Uh, keep in mind, you know, as post-Citizens United. And and then he runs for re-election saying, I've been vindicated, you know, just like in the Mueller report. He keeps saying, you know, no collusion, no obstruction, even though that's not what the Mueller report says. After this, he would say no quid pro quo, no bribery. And uh, and he wins re-election. And then he does what Viktor Orban did in Hungary when he won re-election, um, you know, alter the Constitution. You've got 33 states now that are on board to rewrite the Constitution. He gets together with his billionaire buddies, rewrites the Constitution, does away with the free press. Um, you know, does you know he's he's already stacking what is supposed to be an independent judiciary, and turns America into Hungary. It turns America into a semi-fascist autocratic state. This is an entirely plausible yeah. scenario. Just like Puerto Rico, thirty yep. percent or more of us on the streets. Yep, yep. I think that's and entirely refuse, possible too. Refuse to do anything. And the fact that, you know, half of eligible voters don't even bother to register to vote and of the ones who are registered to vote, about half of them don't vote. That's also very troubling. And that's something that, you know, hopefully people will get what the stakes are and show up. So Mitch McConnell comes out and says, yeah, good luck, guys. He says, look, I think it's pretty clear our Democratic colleagues do not have a great affinity for President Trump. But the country cannot afford for Democrats in Congress to take a one-year vacation from any productive legislation just because they'd rather obsess over impeachment. This is a guy who has 230, maybe maybe it's 260 now, pieces of legislation sitting on his desk, sent over from the House of Representatives, that he's refusing to allow even a committee hearing on, much less a vote, including several pieces of legislation that would secure our elections from interference by foreign actors. And you got Seth Abramson out there saying, yeah, in the last, like 2016, it wasn't just the Russians, it was the Saudis, it was the UAE. He went through the whole list here on this program. And Mitch is like, yeah, it's all good. You know, they're the same billionaires who own us, right? I mean, you know, Citizens United made up in 2010, they expanded the Buckley Doctrine to say even foreigners can own American politicians. And guess what? Now they do. I mean, we talked about the Republicans who, who were taking money from Ukrainian oligarchs, over $7 million. Going to Mitch McConnell and a couple of other Republican senators who are doing everything they can to help out Trump. This is going to be a really difficult fight. Anybody who thinks this is going to be easy or, hey, it's obvious Trump admitted the crime. That's, you know, even Richard Nixon didn't admit the crime. The tapes revealed the crime, but Nixon never admitted it until he resigned. And even then he didn't admit any crimes. He was just like, well, you know, I guess being president isn't going to work anymore. And keep in mind, Richard Nixon, for those of you who are young enough that you don't remember, Richard Nixon had been vice president for eight years to Dwight Eisenhower, who was generally, even among Democrats, a beloved president. Richard Nixon ran against John Kennedy in 1960 for president and came within a whisker of winning that. He was a very popular politician. 
And then when he ran again in 1972, when he, well, he ran for, in 68, he was elected. In 72, he was elected overwhelmingly. George McGovern carried only one state. Nixon was fabulously popular. When this started, that was 72. The impeachment proceedings began in late 73. And we're now in the spring of 74, and the, and the House is voting to investigate him. And only four Republicans said, no, don't investigate him. What changed between then and now? The Supreme Court. The Supreme Court changed the rules of the game. And that's the thing that troubles me the most. So, anyhow, Sean in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today? This is a question that's been gnawing at me for the longest time. I wonder that, as you mentioned about Nixon and Republicans in, in the 70s, my thought is, it, I wonder if a lot of this like foreign money from like Russia or other things, things that we don't know about, have changed the calculus of the way the Republicans are voting and the way they see Trump because they have. Trump may it have has. over them. I mean, you know, Mitch and a couple of other Republican senators have taken over seven million dollars just from one foreign oligarch. You know, I mean, right. it's it's and, and God only knows where all the rest of it's going. I mean, there's there's just this mind-boggling pouring of money. This uh, Michaela Tindera in Forbes magazine, this was published two days ago. At least 20 billionaires behind dark money group that opposed Obama. This is Americans for Job Security. And they spent millions and millions of dollars against Obama back in the day. Now we know that it was Charles Schwab and Doris Fisher and her kids and, you know, the, uh, Richard and Helen DeVos and Richard Kinder and Dan Wilkes and Ferris Wilkes and Robert McNair and, you know, all the people whose names you don't recognize, but they're all billionaires. And uh, these are not foreign billionaires, but I guarantee you that there's foreign money being poured into the Republican Party right now as we speak. And the NRA and all that, too. Yeah, yeah. The NRA laundered, what, $30 million out of Russia. So, yeah, that's, exactly what, that's right. what's going on, Sean. That's absolutely what's going on. Sean, thanks for the call and thanks for bringing it up. Marty in uh, Wyndham, Maine. Hey, Marty. You had once gone through the history of why the impeachment clauses in place and specifically bribery. And I think also with respect to one of the very specific statutes, I think it's Title 52, 30121 about um, foreign nationals directly and indirectly making contributions. It seems what I'm missing in just the discourse that can really sell the case is why are these types of violations more relatively much more important than say just other <laughs> law breaking that may be happening right. um, and why is this the one that really should upset people well in the context of impeachment first of all back when the debates were being held in philadelphia as i recall it was in july of 1787 when the discussion was held about impeachment and i don't have that right in front of me right now but i have in the past, uh, quoted from it at some length and ranted about it. Yeah, I don't have it. You know, with the actual quotes from the actual people who were there. But basically, the main thing at that time, America having just fought a war against Great Britain and having Spain in Florida uh, threatening our southern border, France in what we now call Louisiana threatening our southern and southeastern border, and of course, the Great Britain and Canada threatening our northern border. You know, one of the big concerns was a president who might be beholden to a foreign interest. And in fact, that was used 
against John Adams in his election in 1796, the fact that he had defended the British soldiers who, who shot Crispus Atticus, the Boston Massacre. And it was used against Jefferson because he had spent several years in Paris as the U.S. envoy to France. So there was this terrible concern that a president might be, might have loyalties to a foreign government or might be involving foreign governments in American politics. So that was just like so verboten. It was like so over the top that it was unimaginable. And of course, that's what Trump did. He reached out to a foreign government, and it, it turns out now he's reached out to several foreign governments and said, would you please help me in this election? In fact, it's what he did when he said, you know, Russia, if you're listening, you know, get Hillary Clinton's tapes. And sure enough, they went and did it. So that is the foreign piece of that, I think, is the part that, you know, flips everybody out. That domestic politics stop uh, historically. This is pre-Buckley. Domestic, we always used to say politics stops at the water's edge, right? At the edge of the, at the, at the borders of the country. In other words, we don't, when our president is overseas, we don't trash talk him. Uh, and, you know, the, the first major exception to that became Obama, you know, and, and Trump and other Republicans were trash talking Obama when he was out of the country. And, and, and then secondly, of course, you don't solicit the help of foreign governments for this. Have I answered your question, Marty? Basically, I'm not sure that it would be easy for me to then speak with a very mixed community up here where I am. Um, Here's your sentence, you know, Marty. I'm Trump tried to bribe a foreign government into manufacturing dirt on American politicians. That's excellent. Any I mean, that's the bottom line. Feed in, any chance you can feed in the relevance or irrelevance to either the bribery side or the contributions and donations by foreign national side of quid pro quo and intent and whether it makes any difference if one side initiates. Well, the bribe that he was soliciting um, uh, or offering, I mean, you could, it, it was on both sides. He was basically saying, I will give you a visit to the White House, roughly $400 million in military aid, and, you know, a certain level of international recognition. I'll give you those things if in exchange you'll give me dirt on Joe Biden. And so, you know, he's soliciting a bribe and he's offering a bribe. And the impeachment language in the Constitution says that a president may be impeached for treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. And high crimes and misdemeanors, by the way, was defined by the people in the Constitutional Convention as maladministration, as, as badly running the office of the presidency. And I think very that you could, build, point. Right, you could build a very, very strong case that putting an oil lobbyist in charge of the Interior Department, you know, that is selling oil leases on federal lands, putting a coal lobbyist in charge of the EPA that's supposed to clean up the air caused by burning coal, putting a telecom lobbyist in charge of the FCC, uh, you know, and, and there's a long list. There's like six or seven of them who are heading up federal agencies, lobbyists, and then there's over 170 lobbyists that Trump has installed in senior positions throughout. That is maladministration. And therefore, that in and of itself is impeachable in any other day or era. But again, the Supreme Court essentially legalized all this with the Buckley decision, the First National Bank decision, and the Citizens United decision. And this is the consequence that we're suffering. Marty, I got to move along, but thank you very much for the call. Jim in Salisbury, North Carolina. Hey, Jim, what's up? Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. You bet, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I just want to push back slightly. You had mentioned at the start of the show, I believe, that two Democrats voted against the resolution. Correct. And my issue was that when you said, I get it, I understand what you're saying, I get it, but at the time when we really, really need the vote for a cause that I think is, we haven't seen anything like it in my lifetime anyway, 
that we don't give them excuses simply so they can continue to have a job. Yeah. We need them. We're calling on them. And you uh, here's the mistake that I think they're making, Jim. Mm -hmm. My point was that I'm not going to go all circular firing squad on these guys. I think their own voters are going to do it for them. What they're missing, they're assuming that as Democrats, they can get the votes of, of Republican leaning voters or independents who are Republican leaning or listen to Rush Limbaugh and, you know, right wing hate radio and watch Fox News. They're assuming that they can get some of those votes and therefore they don't want to offend those voters. I think that they're making a huge mistake. I think that Donald Trump is absolutely right in this regard, that elections are won by the base. They're won by getting out the base. They're won by energizing the base. They're won by throwing red meat to the base. They're won by doing what the base wants. They are not won by being, I'm the guy in the middle and you can just trust me and I can reach across the aisle and all this. You know, Jim Hightower wrote a book about this. He said the title of the book was uh, The Only Thing in the middle of the road are, is a yellow, are dead armadillos and a yellow stripe. And, and it's true. And I think that these, these two Democrats are going to get their butts kicked in the next election. And had they voted with the Democrats and had they taken strong positions and had they even taken progressive positions, I think that they would have energized the base in their district and they might have gotten out enough of those base voters to overcome the Republican onslaught that they're going to be facing. But I have a feeling that they're toast. Fair enough. Fair enough. I just that it caught my attention. Yeah. No, I, I get it. And I and, and, I, and I'm I, you know, if the stakes were a whole lot higher, I would not be quite so much making that argument. I mean, we, if it was, you know, the presidential election or something. But I think right now that that rather than focusing on two Democrats who just basically were, you know, playing the role of a cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz pre-Dorothy, right? <laughs> that, you know, that those two Democrats, they're listening to, you know, these corporate advisors. And, you know, sadly, so many Democrats do, whereas the Republicans have completely figured out. You go to your base and you go to your funders. And on the Democratic side, the funders are individual small donations, the people, and unions, basically, you know, fight for working I people. I get the same emails. I get the same emails from Trump's campaign. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then you know yeah, what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. You read those emails from Donald Trump, and I got one this morning from Don Jr., you know. You know, it's a witch hunt, and these guys, and they're socialists, and they want open borders, and they're going to, you know, they're going to destroy America and high taxes, and, you know, all this poll-tested stuff. Oh, yeah. They are just absolutely doing a base strategy. And that concerns me, because base strategies actually win elections. Boy, with all this impeachment stuff and Trump treason flying around, you know... I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, it, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's NUleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafnaturals.com. That's NULeafnaturals.com. That's NULeafnaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. NULeafnaturals.com. Ronnie in Albuquerque. Hey, Ronnie, what's on your mind today? The evidence for impeachment is overwhelming. It's hard for me to understand 
why some people can't see it. And the name Trump will go down in history as one of the most hated, vilified names through history, similar to Adolf Hitler. And my wife and I were talking the other day, why didn't the fool stay on The Apprentice, do the TV show? Nobody would know. Well, that's what what he was trying to do, Ronnie. That's what he was trying okay. to do. He he ran for president, as a, and this is why he hired actors to be there in Trump Tower to applaud him, and they hired actors to come to his first rally. He, he was going to do his announcement and do two small rallies, and that was it. That was the whole plan. This is something, you know, yeah. Michael Cohen laid this out. This is something that he worked out with some PR people because he learned that Gwen Stefani was making a million dollars more than he was on, on NBC, and her show wasn't as highly rated as his. And so he was trying to get NBC to renew his show and give him a pay raise. That's why he ran for president. Well, you know what I think, too? There's some uh, Russian mafia motives behind all of this, too. Putin put him in there and he's paying the price. Oh, they hated Hillary Clinton. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, it was Bill Clinton who broke the agreement between Gorbachev and and, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush that that if the Soviet Union dissolved, we would never put NATO forces on their border. And then Hillary Clinton had been very aggressive against Russia or from their point of view. I mean, I think from her point of view on behalf of the United States. And Trump was totally corruptible. They had a letter of agreement with Trump for a Trump Tower Moscow that was supposed to execute after the election they got put on hold because he got elected. So, yeah, right. spot on, Ronnie. Steve in Proctor, Vermont. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, you had a caller before say that Trump's going to win and they, because of what the Democrats have done because of the size of Trump's rallies. Yeah. Let's dispel the whole thing about Trump's rallies. They follow him around as if he's the Grateful Dead. Yeah, exactly. They... He exaggerates the crowd sizes by a hundred times because most of these venues that he goes to couldn't hold that many people. And when you have the camera outside, there's not 10,000 people outside. There may be 10 people outside. Every rally he goes to, that city, he ends up owing money. He owes the city of Burlington a million dollars for appearing here. Right. Yeah. And he's and he's a deadbeat. He's not paying those bills either. That This is true all over the United States. Minneapolis tried to get him to prepay and he said, ha, screw you. And then he, you know, he came to Minneapolis and trashed Ilhan Omar. You're absolutely right, Steve. Thank you for the call. And thanks for pointing it out. Jeff in Acto, New Jersey. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Yeah, how you doing? Good. Yeah, uh, I found out that my congressman did not vote for impeaching Trump. He's only only two Democrats, not. Yeah, Van Duren and uh, Peterson. Yeah, well, Van Duren's mine. Okay. And I called them up, and, and they told me the reason why they voted not to impeach him was because the Senate wasn't going to impeach him. They were going to just let him go. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so what did you say to that? And I told them, I says, I'm going to tell all my friends not to vote for you next year when you run. Wow. See, this is my point, is that base strategies typically win elections. Going down the middle of the road typically loses elections. And this is the lesson that the Republicans have been, they've been running base elections now since Reagan. 
And Democrats haven't run a base election since Lyndon Johnson. And Democrats really need to. And these Democrats who think that they're, you know, if they do, oh, you know, we're going to be in the middle and we're not going to, and, and, you know, we're not going to offend anybody. And the people in the middle, the independents are just going to love us. They are, you know, whistling past the graveyard. Jeff, thank you for the call. And good on you for calling your member of Congress. We need to let people know that we're paying attention. Like I said, I don't want to be uh, doing the circular firing squad on these two guys. I get it that they're in tough districts that are Trump districts, and they think they're doing the best thing. Their votes don't really matter. Hi, it's Halloween. We've got a real live witch on the line, Pamela Grossman. Pam Grossman, she's a writer, curator, teacher of magical practice and history, host of the Witch Wave podcast, and author of a new book, Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power. And Pam, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, as 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 tempted as I am to deal with this like, you know, oh, hey, let's have fun. It's Halloween and and all that kind of uh, kind of hokey stuff. This is actually a serious topic that has some substantial depth. I've only had an opportunity to spend a little bit of time with your book, but a dear friend of mine, Rianne Eisler, has written a number of books, The Chalice and the Blade, and, and a number of others about the history of, of women and women's rights uh, throughout history. I mean, in, in a large and a multi-millennial uh, context, uh, you know, multiple thousands of years. Len Schlein wrote a brilliant book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. Uh, what I learned from those two people, who I both knew, Lena has passed on, but in fact, Rihanna and I were just talking uh, about a month ago in email, is that prior to the 1500s, basically, to the 16th century, women played a major role in society and in, in power functions. They were physicians. They were healers. That Mary worship was the principal practice in Christianity. Virtually all the churches in Europe were dedicated to Mary up until the early 1500s. And then this something happened, and nobody's quite sure exactly what it is. Len Schlein's theory was that basically uh, literacy got legalized, and that changed the way our brains work. But who knows? But something happened, and the men rose up and basically took over. And all those women who were celebrated as great healers and midwives and herbalists became portrayed as witches. And there was a publication of this nasty, nasty book, The Malice Mala or whatever it is, um, I'm mm-hmm. sure you know. And, you know, in the, in the late 1400s, early 1500s, they just, like, brought all this stuff forward. And uh, Len Schlein pointed out, within two generations, women went from being venerated to being actively burned at, at, at the stake as witches all across Europe. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. First of all, I'm a big fan of both of those writers, and it's amazing that you got a chance to get to speak with them directly. I'm only familiar with their books. But essentially, what you're talking about is the witch hunts that happened in Europe and then a little bit later in the New England colonies. And you're absolutely right. A lot of that was sparked by the advent of the printing press and the Malleus Maleficarum, which is the book that you're referring to, um, which in English is translated roughly to The Witch's Hammer was a book that came out at the end of the 15th century. It was written by a man named Heinrich Kramer, who was 
a friar. And he essentially was trying to link together the idea not only that witchcraft was real, because a lot of people believed that witchcraft was real, but that it was specifically women who were most susceptible to the devil's temptations to draw them into witchcraft, because he believed that women were lusty. He believed they were stupid and ambitious, interestingly, and gossipy. And because certainly anybody could have been a witch back then or was considered to have been a witch, um, he was really the first person to popularize the notion that it would usually be women because they had that weaker, as he believed, um, kind of temperament. And then ever since, we have considered witches to be linked with women for better and for worse. Right. And, and uh, this has led to six centuries of persecution of women and justified patriarchy, justified the exploitation of women, justified men holding power in virtually every dimension in ways that are, I mean, if you look at it in the arc of you know, the last five, six hundred years, literally just starting to break down in my lifetime. I mean, <laughs> in the last 40, 50 years, we're seeing women elected to Congress, women elected to the Senate, more on one party than the other, certainly, but possibly a woman becoming president of the United States. In fact, the last woman who ran got three million more votes than the guy who's in there right now. That is a fact. Yeah. So it seems to me that things are getting better generally for women. How are things getting better for women who practice non-traditional religions? You call yourself a witch who, who would embrace those kinds of titles. Absolutely. And you're right. Slowly but surely, it is getting better, though not fast enough, in my opinion. Amen. Um, but what's really interesting is not only that people are identifying as witches in a more positive way now, and I'll certainly talk about that, but actually with every wave of feminism since the 19th century, we've seen the figure of the witch be reframed and reclaimed as a positive feminist icon. Um, so what we're experiencing now in this fourth wave of feminism is an extension of those other waves. And essentially what's happening is multifold. First of all, there are a lot more people like myself, uh, people of all genders, we should say, who are identifying as witches for literal spiritual reasons. They, like me, are practicing some form of modern witchcraft, um, I personally call myself a pagan, though I'm also still Jewish. You could call me a Jew witch, if you will. Um, but essentially, you know, the, there is this growing movement of modern witchcraft practitioners, and that is becoming far less stigmatized with time. Uh, but the other thing that's happening is that the witch has become this archetype that a lot of feminists and progressive rebellious people are tapping into for political reasons. Uh, much in the same way the phrase nasty woman was originally this negative epithet that then people reclaimed for themselves in this more positive kind of like tongue-in-cheek rebellious way. So, too, we're seeing that with the word witch and the identity of witch uh, for, for political reasons. So it's fascinating that this is happening at the same time. In my case, I use the word witch to describe myself for both of those reasons, the spiritual and the political.
And you're relatively young. I, I had a conversation with Rhianne at her home. David Lloyd, by the way, her husband, has written some brilliant stuff on Darwin. I was a member of his Darwin project, saying that Darwin was not talking about survival of the fittest, which is kind of a, a, a tangent, but it's really, uh, if you like Rhianne's writings, you should check out David Lloyd's stuff. We were talking about elder women, uh, older women, that in traditional societies, even today, in many traditional societies, Aboriginal, Indigenous societies, and in European society prior to the 1500s, older women were viewed as wise. They were the wise elders. Yeah. They were the ones who provided protection. They were often the ones who made the decisions for the community. They, were, they, were, they had enormous political power. And then post-1500, as, as, you know, as the patriarchy emerged you know, with a vengeance, they were defined as the crone, as and and that was part of this whole witch archetype. I and mean, you see little kids dressed up as witches; they're not just dressed up as people wearing black hats and, and a cape or something like that. They are they're typically wearing a mask that makes them look like they're in their 80s, right? They, their their nose is <laughs> extended out. They've got old warts on them and stuff like that. They're old. That idea of uh, can you speak to that idea of and reclaiming the idea? of the older woman as the wise woman. I'm seeing this right now. You know, Jane Fonda, 75 years old, just got arrested, you know, protesting uh, some of Trump's craziness. Um, a number of women have been on this program. In fact, she's been on this program, kind of reclaiming both their femininity and their age. Your thoughts? Absolutely. So getting back to the time of the witch hunts, um, though people of all ages and all genders were accused of being witches, it was most often women over 40 who had the most accusations leveled against them. Um, often they also might not have had children or not enough children. Sometimes they had land and, and they were widows and people wanted their land. Uh, but, but that marker of them being generally over 40 is a pretty consistent through line. And the reason for that is... As today, still, we often consider women who are past reproductive age or past the age of, you know, sexual desirability as no longer appealing, no longer valuable. Whereas, you know, certainly the um, goddess movement and the feminist movement in general, especially here in America and in the UK, where a lot of it uh, was first sparking, has tried to reclaim the fact that as women get older, even if they're not um, reproducing anymore or people aren't necessarily desiring them in the same way anymore, that they still have immense experience and wisdom and, and how valuable that is. Um, so there was a writer named Robert Graves, who you might be familiar with. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called The White Goddess. And he was really one of the first historians to talk about this uh, framing of goddesses as a triple goddess. And the, that framing of the triple goddess is said to have three aspects, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And this triple goddess was, um, you know, it, it's something that you can trace in a lot of different mythologies and a lot of different cultures, though Graves was really uh, one of the first people in English to kind of put a framework around it in those terms. 
And then the pagan community and, you know, later the Wiccan community really uh, latched on to this notion of the triple goddess. It also traces the phases of the moon, you know, going from new to full and then dark again. And some people say that, you know, the crone is related to the dark aspect of the moon. Um, And so it's this idea that women have power at every stage of their life, um, as does the moon, as does the capital G goddess, if you are one to believe in her or in them. And so it's been wonderful to see the crone be reclaimed uh, in that way, in that witchy, powerful way. Amen. Pam Grossman, her book, Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic and Power. The website, Pam Grossman, G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N.com. Pam, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, and happy Halloween. Thanks. Oh, and Pam does the Witch Wave podcast. You can tweet her at Witch Wave Pod. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And happy Halloween to Pam and everybody else. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 